0: Welcome everybody to Armchair Generals, a podcast where the two of us talk about geopolitics, what's going on in the world, and all things militaria. I'm Garrett, with me as always is my uh, co-pilot, Andrew. Andrew, what's going on?
1: I would say uh, not much, but that would be a lie. It's more of the same. Uh, I think I look forward to talking about Ukraine. It. You couldn't write this stuff. It's so crazy. And then, you know, with the Turkish elections, I think Turkish politics, internal politics, are always like a bad drama. And I'm, uh, I'm excited to see what happens in three days. Maybe uh, Erdogan won't be president anymore, president for life anymore.
0: It's remarkable how much cha- has changed and yet how little has changed in, uh, in the world in the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm, uh, I'd be remiss not to mention that I'm sipping on a fine small barrel vintage rum produced by our friends at Bundaberg in Aussie Uh, I'm just still celebrating AUKUS, you know, I'm still over here getting excited about selling nuclear submarines to our friends down under, uh, and upsetting the French, uh, is it's still, it's all, it's all good. It's all good to me. You know we're all five eyes together. I'm excited about it. So cheers to Aukus. Exactly.
1: They uh, no one gets between our English speaking nature.
0: Yeah, I think it's really remarkable how uh, close the Anglo club is uh, when compared to even our closest non English speaking allies. They gotta look askance at how close uh, the U.S. Australia the UK and Canada and New Zealand. We'll throw New Zealand in too. They're one of the eyes. It's they're, true. They're all, right. they're all right down there too, the Kiwis.
1: I, I agree. And it's, you know, it's funny because like if you were an outside observer, we, it's like we fight not fight, but like we're not aligned in a lot of things that, you know, our politics, our political systems are different, like X, Y, and Z. But at the same time, it's like brothers or family members and so, at the end of the day, there's like this baseline of cooperation that's just sacrosanct, and I, I think you know it's great for us.
0: Yeah, it is great for us. You know, what's fascinating is so not to we're digressing a bit, but I think this is interesting. So, Five Eyes is the uh, is the name of the intelligence sharing agreement that uh, is between the U.S. NSA, the National Security Agency, our signals intelligence. Um, the uh, British GCHQ, the that's the signal intelligence unit in Britain. So signals intelligence is all electronic surveillance of communications. Uh, Canada's, Australia's, and and New Zealand's. And so all five of those countries share the raw data stream. Like the, they've like fully, full access between all five partners to the raw intelligence from all signal intercepts. But What all those countries have laws against domestic spying by those agencies, however, the other agencies do not have laws against reading the intercepts of those other countries which are members of Five Eyes. So, it's a neat little way to get around domestic laws in each of those (laughs) countries to read, uh, it's intercepted signals within the countries they just so like. An email gets sent in the United States between two people in the United States. The NSA can't read it, but GCHQ can. And if it's something, <laughs> G, G, you know, GCHQ shares that raw data with NSA. It's like it's it's um, that's how close we are. Also, how terrifying uh, that kind of thing. Is. It's really
1: absolutely. And I I remember reading an article about I think they were they were doing like terrorism watch. Basically, like the US was like. We can't. We don't know, but like, maybe you should look at some email traffic on these days and, yeah, right. and see what happened. Um, yeah. Wink, wink. That nudge, fig nudge. leaf of yeah. yeah,
0: That fig leaf of legality. Uh, we are living in the worst possible timeline. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I digress. All all because of my friend bringing me some Bundaberg back from Australia. We got that little that little aside, but uh, let's jump into sure. it. Sure. Let's start with Ukraine. Ukraine. Absolutely. Wagner Group. What's going on with Proglesian? You know,
1: well, when he's not starring on TikTok, I mean, Telegram or whatever it is, I would say uh, he was supposed to be fighting a war. Seems to be they've progressed about, you know, 400 feet in in Bakhmut when the the Russian army isn't like fleeing around him. It seems like at this point. Uh, I think today was the day he threatened to pull out if he didn't get more ammunition. And at times I have, I have two thoughts on him. And the first is how crazy is this, that he's basically like trying to arm, you know, trying to uh, strong arm the government to basically support his prison, ex-prisoner army fighting the Ukrainians for a a city that really has limited strategic value. But the fact that he does it out in public and he shames the defense ministry regularly. So at one point he looks like a caricature, like a lot of Russian politics. It's, it seems crazy, right? Like he had a restaurant, he's a chef, like he's fighting this army, crazy stuff. But at the same time, Sometimes I think the nuggets of truth that he does drop are like really, really telling and things you don't get from the rest of the government because he, he'll he post those videos where he's like, yeah, here are like the 300 of my men who died today. Here are their bodies. And, you know, we've lost X, Y, and Z. And this is what's happening. And these people's kids were hanging out on vacation in in wherever it is in the Emirates and avoided the draft. Like sometimes like the truth that he drops, you can't really necessarily take it as truth, but it provides an insight for someone like myself, who's on the outside and has no, no connection to understand Russia beyond what we see in the media, uh, a perspective that I don't see from other people. Cause he's part of the system.
0: Yeah. And for those who might not be super familiar with who we're talking about, um, Prigozhin or Putin's chef is the head of a private military contractor called the Wagner Group. Uh, they've been active in a lot of conflict zones, uh, Syria, most notably. Also, have been active in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, where um, Russia has interests in, you know, like cobalt mines and uh, rare earth lithium. You know, harvesting and, and what have you. So, uh, he runs this private military organization. He's, um, a little bit of an odd character, kind of failed restaurateur, has had several careers, uh, but is very sometime in jail. Sometime in jail is, is yeah, a real character and uh, is very has a very large following on Telegram as you were mentioning, and is uh, fairly close or was fairly close with Putin. He seems to have expended a lot of political capital during the Ukraine war uh, in the form of um, cheerleading and not really presenting with successes uh, to to the Kremlin. Uh, Bakhmut, in particular, has been just a killing field for Wagner mercenaries. And they are most notable now for emptying out prisons and taking the bottom of the barrel sort of uh, of Russian society, uh, no, giving them no training, handing them a rifle, and then sending them into a meat grinder. I mean, even more than I think the Russian army, the Wagner group is now really just shock troops. Um, this really Soviet style, really, really Stalinist, almost World War II style, Battlefield tactics that we're seeing, especially in Bakhmut. I mean, Bakhmut effectively doesn't exist anymore. I I think it's not too too much
1: to say. The one thing I would add about the, the Wagner group is it actually started as a pretty sophisticated, highly experienced organization because the members only numbered about five or six thousand, and they were mostly ex special Russian forces, ex Spetsnaz. And they, those folks could get paid more working for Wagner in Syria, in the Middle East, in Africa, than they could in the Russian army. The irony, though, is it started that way. as kind of like the best of the best, and they branded themselves like that. But within a very short period of time of throwing those troops basically in, like, static World War I warfare, he burned through them. He then went to the prisons— I I I think he's had something like 8 times attrition. So for every person he started with, he's killed 8 people. So he's replaced 7 8 times. Uh I think the US just estimated that they lost 20,000 folks in back in Bakhmut alone.
0: The fact that the Wagner group which was a scalpel was used as a sledgehammer shows how poorly designed the invasion of Ukraine was at the outset. You don't use special forces troops uh, as uh, as shock troops. You don't. You don't put. The, they are precision, not not fire and fury. And so, the, just another example of the, sort of the misallocation of resources, um, and that I think probably the complete uh, the. Uh, the Russian government just underestimated their opponent. Absolutely,
1: I mean, and this ties in well with I think what's the, you know something that's analogous here is this Russian
0: offensive that we saw. It has gone anywhere? Yeah, it's 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 been really just static warfare. I want I don't know that one could even call it an offensive.
1: And that it it's very telling. You draft three hundred thousand additional people you put them through training, you put them into the field. They are under fire, there's sustained casualties, but they're not going anywhere. So what's the point of actually having shoved them to the front line? Uh how long can you hold out? How long can the Russians decide that this politically makes sense even in their illiberal form of government? I I don't know and if you're a conscript and you've been conscripted and you've now spent months and months and months, probably in some unheated location with no electricity, potentially in a foxhole or, or a trench, and you know the Ukrainians are going to have a counterattack at some point, you wonder what's going to happen. I think what may we may see is what we saw recently around Bakhmut, where one of the Russian regular army brigades basically fled the front line. I think they had sustained significant casualties and they just broke. And that I wouldn't be surprised if we see that, but what are your, what are your thoughts?
0: Well, I hope if I were being optimistic, I would hope to see more Russian units breaking and fleeing being routed at this the sustain the casualty rate is is unsustainable. Uh, however, you know, I hate to say it, but the, the weight of numbers uh, are on the Russian side. And Putin has taken the measure of the West and he's taken the measure of Ukraine, and he is wagered that his resolve is greater than ours. And ultimately, in warfare, Uh, That is what counts, your willingness to fight longer than your enemy. Look at Afghanistan is a perfect parallel. The Taliban uh, was more willing to die than we were, which, you know, rightly or wrongly, uh, we were there, and we were less committed than our enemy. And the more committed foe will will all the more com- committed a uh, combatant will, will win mo- mo- most often. And I think right now, Russia is more committed than the West. But the open question is, are they more committed than Ukraine? And so far, it seems that Ukraine is as committed, if not more committed, to this fight.
1: and better managed
0: and better managed certainly better managed so they have an edge but that edge only lasts for as long as the west remains committed to supporting the fight in ukraine and that it's not clear to me at all that our commitment will extend beyond 2023 Uh, it's really an open question what happens after january of 2025 there will be an election in the united states and without The U.S. being a strong and forceful advocate for Ukraine in Europe, it's hard to say if Germany and France will maintain levels of support necessary for the Ukrainians to sustain combat much beyond this next year.
1: I agree with you. I what I do think is if that's known, right, like we're going into an election, things are waning. I wonder I wonder if they somewhat unleash like there are things the Ukrainians aren't doing that they could do because they don't they want to be seen positively basically in the western media and when they make their cases hey send us tanks send us I think if if the gloves came off and they're like we have no support we don't need to get this political backing there's no reason why they wouldn't go on the offensive. Like they have high mars. Like, it's not like they can't attack things in Russia. We just ask them not to do it with our weapons that we give them. So I, I do think there's a lot more damage the Ukrainians can do. If they know they're going to lose, they're going to do it. It's just a matter of course. And I also think the Russians, to be perfectly honest in the modern society, in the modern Russia, I don't think they can do an occupation like a long-term occupation with a robust insurgency. Because it's not like it's us versus them. The people look the same. They speak the same language. That is like the worst type of insurgency. They talk about blending in, you know, like you wouldn't be able to figure out who's who. And I think it could get, if it got to that point, it could get, it could get really bad. But focusing on the now, I'm I'm hopeful that the Ukrainians can can have a successful counteroffensive because this, I think most people agree, this is going to end with a negotiated settlement. And it's just a question of when do both sides feel like the negotiating table is the right time. And I think neither side feels that time is now because neither side feels enough pressure. And I think what we'll see is the Ukrainians we will see how this counteroffensive goes. If, if it doesn't really go anywhere and it's just static line warfare, I wouldn't be surprised if at the end of this fighting season, if we get into the winter, negotiations are more open at that point.
0: That's an interesting take uh it does feel as though something. There is a, a timer is is set. There is a, there is time is not on Ukraine's side. It is on Putin's side, barring some externality that we don't foresee. Uh, you know, massive collapse in the Russian military, a coup, his death. It's going to it's it, it's devolved into attritional warfare, which Putin can probably sustain better than Ukraine can. They have more people, uh, larger army, more.
1: Though I do wonder, I do wonder with even though we basically say Putin doesn't have to worry about politics, I do wonder, like the special military operation, this this. Big, this kind of fiction that this isn't a war in Russia. How long can that last when the death toll hits a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand, two hundred thousand? I mean, that's just dead. I mean, think how many were maimed and wounded.
0: It's all. It's all. Isn't the casualty number already at a hundred thousand for the Russians?
1: The casualties, but I think that the U.S. estimated it was like sixty or seventy thousand died. And so when you think of that, though, I mean, that's – what are the U.S. losing around, like 2,000 people, something like in that? A,
0: in Iraq, yeah. Iraq and yeah. Afghanistan, I think, combined was less than 5,000. We're, so, we're just – maybe just over. So, yeah, we're we're talking about 10 times or more the number of soldiers lost in, in our wars in the Middle East. Uh, more soldiers than were killed in Afghanistan, which pre- precipitated the end of, of uh, the Soviet Union in some ways. So, uh, and Russia has a long-standing history of military defeats on the battlefield leading to political upheaval in Moscow. You can go back to Afghanistan most recently, but before Afghanistan, uh, World War I, the overthrow of the Tsar, uh, before that, the Battle of uh, Tsushima, the Japanese defeated um, the Russian Navy in the in the Far East, and it resulted in the Tsar basically having to sign up uh, sign a constitution, uh, which stripped the the Tsar of many of the direct powers to govern that he had enjoyed up until then. So this is not this is a a, a repeating cycle within Russian history that. Military defeats create opportunity for significant political upheaval. So we'll see. It's not certainly it's not without precedent, and it's certainly something that that could happen. Um, But I don't see the cracks showing yet.
1: Neither do I, and and I think one way that will happen is, I think there are two things that will make it very hard for the Russians not to. One would be, let's say, the Ukrainian offensive occurs, they encircle a large army group, and they basically capture 10,000 Russians or something to that effect. If that happens, it would just be a field day. Like, it would be impossible for the Russians to really deny anything, right? Um, They'll try. The other thing, I think, is if you see significant territory retaken or if it's strategically important. So for example, if Zaporizhia is saying where, where I think as much as I would like to think there's some grand strategy in there, they're just fainting in this direction. Like when you look at a map, if you could go diagonally down from Zaporizhia to like the Azov sea there, you could cut the Russian lines. You would have you would make logistics r- much more challenging for the Russians, and if you could hold it, it would basically make everything on the the eastern bank across from Kursan uh, v- vulnerable to further advances. And then you would be right up at the top of Crimea. You would put more of Crimea in range of of artillery. And also basically put you back to the starting line for where the Ukrainians started, at least in that part of the country, which isn't as rapidly pro-Russian. If something like that were to happen, I think it would be hard in Russia to spin that in, in any way but negative. To be honest, um, I think the military bloggers would have a field day, and it would just be interesting to see what happened at that point.
0: Yeah, what were the what would the take be? Um, it feels as though we've settled into a new normal. Earlier in the conflict, particularly you know March, April, May of last year. And then uh, throughout the summer, the Russian war was so badly mismanaged and the Ukrainians were enjoying so much success so early. Uh, And then the the large counteroffensive in the late summer that it seemed as though momentum was on the Ukrainian side and the Russians were on the back foot. And I think you saw that commentary in the Russian military blogosphere. Uh, and inside the Russian Ministry of Defense, and people like Progoysian, and people like um, our friend from uh, Chechnya.
1: Keturyev.
0: Yes. Ramzan. Uh, Ramzan. were were really, we were getting a lot of that negative feedback. And then hostilities really slowed down quite a bit through the winter and into the early spring, and the Russians settled into, I think, a style of of warfare that benefited them, attritional warfare in fixed lines, moving slowly, uh, advancing behind a shield of artillery, uh, destroying basically everything in front of them, and then standing on top of the ashes of that. And so, a lot of that that negative commentary has been dialed way back. And so, I think, psycho from a psychological warfare perspective, from a momentum perspective ukraine needs to regain the initiative on the battlefield and show that they're still capable of pushing the russians back because otherwise the narrative flips and it's that and it goes back to what it was in february of 22 which is they will slowly but surely push ukraine into a, a position of weakness before forcing them to the negotiating table and so it's really incumbent on, on Ukraine and the Ukrainian military to uh, take take to the offense give, Russians a, give the Russians a bloody nose wherever they can and show that they're still capable of inflicting enough damage that they could conceivably push the Russian army back to where they were in February of 2022 if not all the way back to the border that existed in 2014. And so, you know, it's May. Uh, I suspect they will begin the their spring summer operations soon and we'll see, you know, we'll see what happens.
1: Absolutely. It'll be it'll be intriguing to see and also enlightening given the 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 weaponry we know the Ukrainians have amassed at this point in time. And sadly, if nothing else, we know a lot of people are going to die.
0: Sadly. uh, Yeah, a a lot of people uh, between now and the end of this conflict. uh, And hopefully Ukraine can, you know, organize a a good spring offensive that brings this war to a a quicker end than it otherwise would. Because, you know, that's going to save lives in the long run and be good for freedom and liberty and all that. Slava Ukraine. Yeah,
1: Slava Ukraine. I... I would say, though, that we we talk just mostly the military front so far, but there's the other side. There's the political side of this, too. And while the war is being fought in the Ukraine, Russia is having to deal with the ramifications. I mean, their, their bosom buddies these days are North Korea and Iran, which I think if you're a well-educated Russian, you're probably thinking like, I don't want the history books saying like when I look to my buddies, it was North Korea and Iran. A don't you know, forget Turkmenistan and Turkmenistan, and so I think nothing better illustrates this than the recent May Day celebration in Russia. And I do want to touch briefly upon the "quote unquote" drone strike on Putin that occurred over. uh, over the Kremlin when Putin was like a thousand miles away doing false flag. Yeah. False flag false flag. False flag. Uh, I, I had two takes on this and I don't know what is correct, but if let's say the Ukrainians did do it, um, the Russians are incompetent because I heard they, you know, it was like a decent sized drone and, if they flew it 300 miles from the Ukraine over Moscow, got over the Kremlin, that's incompetence right there. And, and it just tells you like how the Ukrainians are not they're holding back. Like when it comes to like messing stuff up in Russia, if they could do that, there's a lot of stuff that's much easier to attack that they could. Um, if this was some type of Ukrainian, you know, paramilitary slash you know, even domestic opposition to Putin. Also it says a lot about how it could happen. Um, but I would say like if you're the average Russian, I, I wonder if it made the news. If it made the news and like they tried to kill Putin and, you know, the to rally nationalist sentiment. These days, does who do people believe it? And and I remember when the war was starting, a lot of people who were polled said like I don't want to know the truth because then I'm going to be sad. Like, I'll be sad that my country is the one who did this, right? Um, But after so long with this war going on for over a year, I wonder what the sentiment is or are people just kind of adjusted to it? And the second part of this is that political aspect. Like, you're so isolated. Like, you can't go to Europe anymore. Uh, You can't go to Europe your trading partners like the Western companies have pulled out your manufacturing base in Russia. It was never very good. Uh, your supposedly friends with no boundaries in, in China is, is still hedging whether or not to give you military aid. Cause they're, I think they're honestly not sure this is going to go anywhere, even if they gave you the aid, which would tarnish them in the world's opinion. And so how long can they hold out? Like does the economy continue to crash if, they have to sell all their oil to China and India at cut rate prices, and they can't do. You move it through pipelines. It has to be on trains or it has to be shipped by container or tanker. I, I don't know, but it can't be good. And with the global economy the way it is anyways, are we going to see inflation? Are we going to see – are we going to see – just stagnation and you're going to have a generation of Russians who lose out. And that, that kind of political contract they had with, with Putin about things are going to get better. You just stay out of politics. Does it have any meaning anymore? And if not, what's the new, what's the new contract look like?
0: No, that's a, that's a fair point. Uh, my, for what it's worth, I, I think we're looking at a, a false flag operation it seemed too convenient and the, you know, the footage of the drone framed as it was with the, the flag of the Russian Federation and, and the, the damage to the structure was so minor. It seem, seems like who benefits from this? Uh, it seems to me that, that ra- raising Russian nationalist sentiment is the most obvious motive. So that's my view, we'll probably not know anytime soon what what happened but you know the regime does have a, a track record of perpetrating assaults on its own people and territories in order to gain a political narrative that it finds convenient so that's not outside of the realm of possibility but they're uh, speaking of the kremlin and of moscow and the May Day celebration was a little bit of a, uh, a disappointment. This is the celebration that commemorates the victory of the allies over the Nazis uh, and the end of what the Russians call the Great Patriotic War, World War II. And they, they mark the occasion on uh, May 9th. Uh, the, did you see that the Ukrainians moved the date of their celebration to line it up with the rest of Western Europe? So... Western Europe celebrates it on the eighth, a day earlier, and the Russians and Ukrainians have always celebrated on the 9th. Uh, and and uh, uh, President Zelensky moved the date yeah. <laughs> so that they would celebrate on the day with the rest of Europe, and and so now Russia is even more isolated. Um, and it was a, a quite a sad display. Uh, no tanks.
1: They had all been destroyed in the Ukraine.
0: They've all been destroyed in Ukraine. I think one T-34, so one uh, World War II-era vintage uh, tank, was uh, was on the streets. Uh, a few ICBMs and uh, no, no aircraft, I think, to speak of. Very few troops on review and, and no heavy equipment. And no foreign dignitaries except for the president of Turkmenistan and I think the president of Tajikistan were the only two uh foreign dignitaries who who made their way to Moscow to mark the occasion and Putin's speech was I don't know if you listened to it very strange, very angry, very paranoid. He seems like a man who may be losing the plot. So, I don't know how stable He's not a
1: spring chicken. So like He's not There's and we don't talk about that too often cuz we're You know, we don't think about it as much, I guess. But he, like, there is a time limit. It's just kind of like Xi in China. If he wants to take Taiwan, there's there's a time limit. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe one of his hidden super secret friends is South Africa right now. Because,
0: yeah, isn't uh, that fascinating? The U.S.
1: just uh, accused South Africa of shipping arms to Russia and not stealthily at all. I guess uh, a large Russian container ship pulled up to South Africa's largest naval base and just uh, started loading stuff up and uh, went off. So uh, president of South Africa has declared a independent commission shall review this, but also blamed the U.S. for, uh, I guess, publicizing this and thought that they were going to have time to complete their review Their internal investigation before it became public knowledge. South Africa. Africa in general has an interesting position on on the Ukraine-Russian war. And actually in relation to Russia in general, too. So I, I think we should at some point spend more time talking about it. But we can hit some of the highlights. A lot of Africa is maybe not completely on Russia's side. But they probably lean more Russia than they do, you know, the idea of rule of law and national boundaries, which, to be perfectly honest, is really strange to me. When you think about the, you know, the last hundred years of Africa, uh, the, the, the right to self-determination has been a key precedent, in, a key principle for many of these countries to overthrow colonial rulers. Uh, but yet they they like cheap Russian gas. They some of them have been sanctioned by the West to the point where they can't really do business, at least their political elite with the West. So they'll go do business with who they can, which is Russia and China and the like. And so it's 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 interesting to see how this is more of a non-issue in parts of the world, uh, and and that comes out at UN vote.
0: Yeah, the global south. In particular, Africa really, I think, sees this as a, a regional or internal problem to uh, Europe and is not as interested in getting deeply involved. They're very ambivalent about the whole thing. Uh, and, and one understands why, you know, the, the Europe and North America don't concern itself too much with freedom and liberty in uh, Africa, Latin America, historically, parts of Asia. So this is no great surprise. Um, India, in particular, I know we've touched on India before, uh, has always been a leader in the non-aligned movement. They they were throughout the Cold War. And so this I see this as a continuation of that sort of uh, political holdover from that age where... You know that we don't want to take sides east east versus west. We just want to kind of stay out of it, and and there's always uh, some ambivalence about the West, the United States, uh, former colonizing countries, and uh, in in Africa. This is not surprising that that they're not hot to jump on to an anti-Russian. Uh, you know, anti-Russian stances. Agreed.
1: In terms of picking sides, uh, the the there are a lot of people in Turkey who have to pick sides. Very, very
0: sure. true. May 14th, parliamentary and presidential elections in Turkey. Very interesting and exciting stuff. Andrew, any predictions? I'm
1: going to predict Erdogan loses. Like, oh. I, let me take this back. I think Erdogan loses if he allows the election to occur fairly. I don't think he necessarily loses in the first round. Uh, in Turkey, the winner, if the outright winner occurs in the first round, they have to win at least 50% of the vote. It may not happen. Uh, most recent polling numbers I've seen are Erdogan around 43%. The, the sole remaining opposition candidate who, six main opposition parties joined together to push him, They are likely to get the Kurdish vote or some part of the Kurdish vote because the Kurdish uh, candidate has, I think, was actually disallowed from running. And the other one of the other two independent candidates who had, you know, at least a couple percent of the vote has recently uh, left the race. So I think there's a chance that uh, they win the first round. But I think the second round is is their their opportunity. I do think Erdogan is actually going to maintain a majority in parliament. We'll make for we'll make uh, a very interesting uh, situation. The The premise, it, it's very strange that the Turkish opposition, their, their manifesto is basically, we are going to go to rule of law. Like, we are going to unwind... The crazy and we're going to go back we're not going to we're going to unwind the pr- presidential system like i want to win the presidency so i can get rid of the presidency
0: for our for our listeners who uh who might not know uh turkey is a hybrid parliamentary presidential system uh and the presidency was introduced by Recep Tayyip erdogan uh during a previous term in office when he wanted to concentrate uh the powers of the executive i think he actually had ter- uh ter- he was termed out he was from being the prime minister yeah he was termed out as prime minister and so he concentrated the powers of the executive into a, an office of the president that was created and and then he ran and, and won that so um unwinding it would would bring turkey back into its former system of government, which is a a more standard parliamentary system where the prime minister uh, is the is the chief executive of the government um, and then a a presidential head of state. So uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, the main opposition candidate. I think it is important to note um, that just dropped out. Uh, did so as a result of a sexual impropriety. It was a, a sex tape, I guess. It was
1: a fake. It was a fake video. Though. Oh, was it wasn't. I didn't. So, I didn't see that. It was a fake video. Oh, fascinating! Yeah. So it was a fake video, but, uh, um, a fake video of him. Weird. But he dropped out anyway. He did drop out, anyways. I mean, he was pulling at two percent of the vote. I think he um, maybe grudgingly he probably thought, well, if we don't want an Erdogan win, like this is what's actually best for the country. I find Erdogan to be a very strange, he has politically like nine, he he burned through nine lives and he's burned through another nine and he's on his like third set of nine. Uh, when you look at what he has achieved, it's really not much. And there are a lot of setbacks. So he, I'm just going to name a few. He's soured his relationship with NATO and the US in particular to the point where he bought S 400 anti-missile systems and anti-aircraft systems and was then banned from buying F 35s. So the Turkish pilots who were training on the F 35 were sent home. (laughs) And then now he wants, he wants to buy more Western equipment because he doesn't want, I think at the end of the day, he realizes we somewhat the West somewhat called his bluff and he doesn't want to like switch over to a Russian standard uh, he likes being in NATO. He likes playing the middleman there. So that was not good. Not good. He uh, he has very odd economic policies where he believes that interest rates should always stay low and that they don't affect inflation. And as you can imagine in, in an emerging market, uh, he has at times destroyed the value of that currency and they're currently facing something like 70 percent annual inflation when you're you're basically talking it's better the day you get your money is better to burn it on a nice dinner because it's going to be worth nothing if you save it which crazy um he his main base of support is in the country and the country is what got pummeled the most by the most recent earthquake and the natural disasters, it came out that he had like lowered the building standards in those regions too to permit more rapid and cheaper building, and then the rollout of aid was pretty horrendous. So he he has a lot of things going against him right now. His I I don't want to call it a failure. I think it was ill advised sore into Syria. Which we don't hear a lot about, but basically the army went in for a little bit. I think they started ha- facing losses, and then they pulled back out. And uh, his on again, off again bromance with Putin, which says a lot.
0: And the fact that um... it's very ahistorical too, because the Turks, the Turks and the Russians are are typically uh, they do not have a, a history of a long history of cooperation with one another. Let us say.
1: He, he, it really pushes on this nationalist ideology, but there seems to be very little substance to it, to be perfectly honest. Um, he The country seems to be in, honestly, a worse position than it was if uh, some of the policies he enacted hadn't occurred. And from a political system, it seems to be very backward at this point. He's kind of... I'm not sure what will happen... Uh, a certain level of cronyism. But uh, I do think if he loses and he allows himself to lose, I think it will make for very contentious um, internal politics because he's best when he's like rabidly nationalist. And as a non-elected figure who's basically, whose personal party has the majority in parliament, he can just whip people up with Führer, whatever he wanted. And so it would make, I think, ruling with that in the wings very complicated, very complicated.
0: Yeah, well, stay tuned. We'll, uh, we'll check all of that out on Monday when the election takes place, and we'll be back at you uh, with more on that next week. Andrew, any uh, closing thoughts or, or remarks you care to share with all our listeners out there in podcast land?
1: Listen, like, subscribe, press the button below.
0: Yeah, the algorithm and whatnot loves that. So do... Hashtag, we are not a chat GBT. Hashtag, we are real people grinding this out. Uh, Yeah, so as Andrew said, like, subscribe, leave a comment. All that stuff helps listeners find the show. I want to thank everybody out there for listening to Armchair Generals this week. Uh, We will be back at you next week with Turkish elections, latest from Ukraine, China, Iran, South America, North America, and all points in between. Uh, I've been Garrett. With me, as always, is Andrew. Thanks again for listening. This has been Armchair Generals. We'll see you next week.